Today is a very special day. It is the Sunday that we celebrate once a year that all of the children who have just been born into this family, on one day, the parents, the families, dedicate them to God our Father. And we as a congregation watch that and also receive responsibility to also care for them. So we have families here. I'm so glad you guys are with us. That is why some of you have been displaced from your normal pews. That's okay. <laughs> um, it's wonderful. But as I've been preparing um, for this week, I just couldn't help but keep thinking about, man, it, this, this Sunday is going to be baby day and uh, just, the, just the miracle. Let us not just glaze over the miracle of children <laughs> that God has given us the ability to man and woman create as he created, that we have the ability to bring forth new life. It's a miracle, and it's beautiful. But for these parents here, I think the real miracle is that you all arrived on time and, and bathed, and that's, that's a miracle. <laughs> the more that I get to be um, in the lives of friends who have children, uh, the more I get to just view the world through that lens as a parent, and the more I am incredibly impressed with you all, <laughs> and, and all parents, as I'm working with middle schoolers and, and middle school parents. Uh, it's no easy thing to raise a child, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to 1 John chapter 2. We are going to be Living in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. If you don't have scripture with you, I encourage you to go ahead and pull out your cell phone, pull up the Bible app. It's, it's going to be really helpful to you this morning to have the text in front of you. We've got a lot of verses to cover. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. I'm, I'm really excited to dive into it. We're in a series called The Good Life, and John is the writer, and Michael introduced John to us last week, and he introduced this series. Uh, John, the beloved disciple, was the one who walked with Jesus, encountered Jesus, lived the good life, and as a pastor now, after Jesus had ascended, as a pastor, he writes this letter to the church, and it, it's essentially, I want you to have the good life too. I want you to live this life with Jesus. And John addresses us as a parent, as a spiritual parent, as an elder. The first words in 1 John chapter 2, what are they? Come on. Thank you, my little children. <laughs> the wonder, the awe of, of taking in the world and learning something new every single day that a child has. Let's not lose that. And also the recognition that just as a child needs training, needs guidance, needs direction every single day, sometimes every single moment, let us not lose sight that we are in that same place, that we need the family of God, the church, and we need direction from our elders. And that's, that is the role that John is taking here. And so John pins these words as, as, as a guide, and, and sometimes it stings a little, and there may be moments this morning where we get stung a little, but we know that it's for guidance, it's for our good. It's offering direction for our good. 
And we also know that it's not just John writing these words. It's not just some wise dude who lived a long time ago and witnessed some cool things and wrote about it. That is true. But we also know that the Holy Spirit penned these words. That the authority that we're going to read today, the authority behind those words comes not from the person of John, but from the Holy Spirit who overshadowed John, who empowered John and embodied him and gave him the inspiration to write. So with some expectation, some anticipation to hear from God himself, let's turn to the text. I'll start in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Why? Because sin will wreck your life, and I want you to have the good life. He continues, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Before we continue any further, we need to pause here again as, as Ryan led us through a, a meditation on this as we're receiving communion. Sometimes forgiveness is such a basic principle of our theology that we just buzz right past it. Like, oh yeah, Jesus, forgiveness, right with God, okay, cool, cool, cool. What else? And I, I think it's not for a lack of information. We've got all kinds of information. I think it's a lack of of this truly seeping into our hearts, that we are in danger of missing the entire point of this whole chapter. Because without this forgiveness piece, this whole sermon very much becomes a legalistic do's and don'ts. And that's not what this sermon is, and that's not what 1 John is. With the forgiveness piece, with the recognition that I am forgiven, I want you to go ahead in your notes. Write that down. I am forgiven. Receive this as a fact that whatever you walked in with this morning, whatever darkness followed you, whatever darkness you created, whatever brokenness is amongst you, it's forgiven in Christ Jesus. Amen? Let us not lose sight of the depth of these words just because of the simplicity of the words. I am forgiven. This is important for the rest of what we're going to hear this morning because the good life is a life in response to a good God. The good life is a life in response to a good God, a God of forgiveness, a God of grace, a God of mercy. It's a life of response. It's not a life of duty to a needy God. And sometimes we get that mixed up. But the life of righteousness is not a life of duty to a needy God. It is a life of response to a good God. That's what obedience is. And that is what drives the next verse that's coming. And we're going to look at this next verse, verse 3, as, as the thesis of what John is saying for this portion of his letter and the thesis of where we're going to go this morning. The focal point is 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. That's the Father. If we keep his commandments. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
Let's continue on and see what he's talking about. Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, brought to its completion. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This is Jesus. Verse 7, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Amen? Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. To paraphrase, the proof is in the pudding. Or as Jesus said it, you will know them by their fruit. Test the spirits. You will know the validity of a person based on how they live. And Jesus knew what John knew, and that is that what we believe and how we live are inseparable. What we believe and how we live are inseparable. Put another way, and perhaps a little more scary, how we live exposes what we truly believe. How we live exposes what we truly believe. Let's hear what Dallas Willard has to say on this. Maybe this will clarify a little bit more. He says, Often in churches, we try to get people to affirm the right beliefs, the right points of view. The real test of what I actually believe is, does it guide what I do? For example, if I'm up on a skyscraper, I would never step off because I believe in gravity. So I won't step off that roof unless I'm trying to hurt myself. My actions are always a result of my intentions and my perceptions of how things are. The problem with the world today is not that there aren't enough people who subscribe to right doctrine. The problem with the world today is that there's not enough people who believe the right things about God or say they believe the right things about God. The problem with the world is there's not enough people that have let what they say and what they think actually penetrate into their heart that from the gut, from the depths of who they are, from their perceptions of the world have been altered by God and that they are truly in alignment with God's will and their actions overflow from that. That's the problem. Let me give you an example. We say that the Bible is our final authority. And, and most, if not all, of you here would agree, yes, the Bible is the infallible word of God, and it is our final authority. You would say that. You believe that. We believe that. That's something that we would write, we would sign on to, absolutely. Here's the problem. The Bible says that it's better to give than to receive, but many of us aren't giving. The Bible says that it's better to forgive than to hold resentment in your heart. 
because freedom comes from forgiveness, and yet so many of us are holding on to grudges. The Bible says that it's better to serve than to be served, and yet so many of us are still grasping at vain attempts for power, for control, for authority, for security. So we may say we believe these things, but our actions expose a different reality. You can't escape the fact that what you truly believe will express itself in how you live. It's not the other way around. And we've been fed this, this gospel of sin management, this gospel of behavior modification, where we try to take our lives and, and make them better by doing better things and make them not as bad by doing not as bad things. And we've got the process all wrong. The gospel is that Jesus transforms our hearts so that our actions, our obedience, our righteousness is an overflowing abundance of our recognition of his forgiveness and his love. It changes us from the inside out. And friends, we don't have the power to change from the outside in. The problem is, we still live by the logic of the world. I'll get mine, you get yours. If you come after mine, I'm going to come after you. And the Bible says that's not even reality. The Bible paints a different picture of reality, a reality under a good God who created the universe, who knows us, who knows humanity, and how we're supposed to work together, and how the universe is supposed to work together. And we read it, and we believe it's coming from him, and yet... We still live by the way of the world. And sometimes we hear God's commandments as just another, like, kick, like, just do better. Come on. Here's the point. A heart that is not inclined to keep God's commands is a heart unchanged by the gospel. A heart that is not predisposed to keep God's commands is a heart that's not changed by the gospel. In other words, if, it, if you're forcing yourself, like, man, this is, I've, I've got to do this, I've got to keep God's commands, that, that is legalism, and that is a heart that's not changed by the gospel. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying a heart that's tempted to sin is not changed by the gospel. That's not what I'm saying. All of us struggle with temptation. Christ himself was tempted. I'm not saying a heart that messes up and, and a flesh that, that gives in and sins is a heart unchanged by the gospel. Paul, in Romans 7, talks about what I want to do, I can't do. The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. I'm not saying that if you sin, your heart is unchanged by the gospel. I'm also not saying that a heart that isn't inclined to do God's will isn't saved. I'm not talking about salvation in the sense of, I get to go to heaven when I die. No, I'm talking about something far deeper and far richer. This is the gospel. Not just that Jesus came and did what he did so that I can go someplace when I die, but that it changes who I am right now. It changes my heart. It changes my reality. It changes my perspective. And it's good. It's transforming that my heart can receive and understand the love of the Father. And it changes me from the inside out. And it changes my world. It changes how I view other people. And there are no threats to me anymore. Because God is on the throne. And it's beautiful. The gospel is good news of heart transformation. Not sin management, 
not behavior modification. Because we can do neither. We can do neither. Let's continue on, and, and we need these tender-hearted words. Um, and this is what we started the service with, and I love that we all read it together because um, chances are it was an old creed statement that, that the churches would say together. And John says, I'm writing to you, little children, I'm in verse 12 now, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Amen. We don't declare the truth over ourselves enough. And that's why I'm thankful for these verses. And note that John addresses the whole family of God as a family. Little children, fathers, not gender specific, but as, as an elder, as an overseer, as a shepherd, a, a spiritual caretaker of the family. Young men, again, not as gender specific, but the younger folks. All of you, all of us. Let's continue on in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides don't miss what John's doing here. He does not give us a list of sins to avoid and virtues to follow. He does not give us a list of rules, of do's and do nots. He addresses the heart. He addresses our loves. He doesn't say, do not do the things of the world, but do the things of God. He says, don't love the things of the world. Love the Father. John addresses the heart because John knows that the heart is the seat. It is the seat of our beliefs. That's what I mean when I talk about our beliefs, our convictions, our desires, our loves, our passions. And John cuts right to the chase and he says, What is it that you love? What is it that you crave? What is it that you long for? And sometimes that's a hard question to answer. Hard in the sense that we're so far removed from it, and we may think that our intentions are better than they really are. But also hard because if we uncover sometimes what we truly want, it's, it can be scary. But John addresses this. He goes straight to our hearts. Why? One, because you cannot serve two masters, in the words of Jesus. John says in verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father, in other words, the Father's love is not in him. You can't have love for the world and for God. We are simple beings, and it is not possible. We don't have the capacity in our hearts to have multiple loves. 
you either love the Father or you love the things of the world. Why is this important? Because the things of the world and the things of the Father couldn't be more different. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away. The rest of scriptures speaks to this. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it uses a word smoke to describe it, or vapor. Your translations might say meaningless. It's this idea of like smoke. You can't control it. You can't even grasp it. You can't hang on to it. It's gone. It's here one minute, and it's gone the next. That's the thing about the things of the world, is they are so temporary. We get so caught up about trivial things. I'm reminded of a a friend who told me, uh, a younger friend who said, you know, my mom used to always say, when I was getting all worked up, will this matter in eternity? And that hit me so hard <laughs> because I get so bent out of shape about things that are just passing away. It's empty. It's meaningless. And yet, the Father's love... <laughs> is what is eternal. Our relationship with our Heavenly Father is what is eternal. That is what will never pass away. Our loves do not pass away. We don't need more people doing more good things. We need more hearts that are transformed by the mercy of God. We need more hearts that desire, that crave, that long for more than anything God the Father. That is what we need. What are the loves of the world? What is he talking about? It, these are the desires shaped by a world unaware and untouched by God. This lust and this pride of life is not characterized by how long it lasts. This isn't talking about if it's just a quick thing, it doesn't count, or if it's an ongoing pursuit, then that's real. It's all, it's all not good. It all leads to sin. When you're desiring security, when you're desiring something that is not yours, when, you're, when deep down what you want is for people to know you and recognize you, what you want more than anything is not God himself, John says you need to take a look at your heart. This needs to be addressed because these loves of the world couldn't be more different from the love of the Father because the love of the Father abides forever. And as he tells us in verse 17, whoever does the will of God abides forever. We know this to be true. That though we die, we live. But the world is not, that, not so. Here's the point. The love of the Father sets us free from the love of the world. God's love is freedom. It is rejoicing. It is goodness. It is life. It is the good life. And the loves of the world, though they can feel freeing, they only bind us. 
They ensnare us. They trap us. That's why the book of Hebrews says the sin that so easily entangles and trips us up, and the love of God sets us free from the love of the world. I want you to know, not as someone who's talking down, but as someone who's inviting you on behalf of Christ, you are invited to be set free. Whatever it is that is entangling your heart, you are invited to be set free. And we carry around burdens that are far too heavy for us to carry. And the love of God sets us free from the love of the world. Let's continue on. We still have some verses to go. John addresses some false teachers now. In verse 18, children, it is the last hour. There's urgency in his voice. And you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Now let me quickly clarify this and break this down. When John is speaking here, the term antichrist is already in the imaginations of the people as one key figure who's going to come with some authority and power from the devil to undo everything that Christ has done. Okay, And I imagine that for many of us, that's where our imaginations go as well. But John makes it clear here, he's talking about an antichrist is one who is anti-Christ. <laughs> Anyone who says Jesus is not who he claimed to be. Jesus is not the Christ. By logical reason is anti-Christ. Now, Christ means Messiah, which means anointed one. These are all the same word. And this is talking about God's true king, who is going to come to bring God's reign into the world. And Israel's kings were supposed to be these people, and time and time and time again, they all failed. And we're waiting with great expectation for God's true king to come and bring God's reign, God's rule, God's kingdom on earth. And Jesus comes and he says, I am he, and he was. And he proved it and sealed it by his life, by his death, burial, and resurrection. Moreover, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. In fact, God himself. God in flesh. And this, the theology of the incarnation, is what sets apart Christianity from all other religions. And there are people in John's day who said, yeah, Jesus was a good guy, but God, no way. And there were other people who said, yeah, Jesus was God, but he wasn't a person. And John's saying, no, 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 no. If you deny this, if you deny the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the fact that they are all one, the fact that Jesus is the Christ, is God's true king, that he brought in God's reign, not with a sword, but with a cross and an empty tomb, that he was God in flesh and he showed us the way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. If you deny this, you're denying everything, and you are anti-Christ. Verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And remember, I'm not talking confession just in a sense of a verbal announcement. 
There's a place for that too. But from a deep inner conviction that Jesus is everything he said he was. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Abiding in the Son and the Father and the Spirit. This is eternal life. This is the good life. This is what we are invited to. Verse 26, I invite these things, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back, not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, in other words, if you know that he's good, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And as we close John's thoughts, we circle back to the same idea that those who practice the way of God are of God, that those who keep God's commandments love God and know God, that those hearts that are naturally inclined, that are predisposed towards keeping God's commandments are the hearts that are in line with God's love. That's how you know. And if you are hearing this this morning and get a sense that you're not quite there, join the club, and I urge you, instead of trying to take the crumbled wreckage of your life and put it back together, would you offer it up to Christ and say, Jesus, I need you to transform my heart. And let goodness flow out of you, out of the goodness of our God, who's given you grace and mercy. And know that it takes practice. I love that this last statement says everyone who practices righteousness because righteousness God's God's right way takes practice and none of us are perfect and I love how he describes it in verse 6 that it's walking in the way that he walked no one expects from over here for your children to learn how to walk in one instant right <laughs> it takes practice to walk in righteousness takes practice so let us together Practice walking with Jesus. Literally study the person of Jesus and do what he did. The band's going to come out again. You guys can come on out and we're going to worship through song together. And we are going to celebrate together uh, the joy of of these new lives that we're bringing in and, and, and Janet's going to do that And before we do that I, I just want you to know once again that you are invited that the Father's heart is not a heart of a cattle farmer prodding you into goodness it's the heart of a shepherd inviting you to follow, inviting you to the good life if you have never responded to this invitation before the baptistry water's warm we would love for you to receive that and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit this morning. If you would like to receive prayer, come forward. If you would like to have a conversation with any of us, we'll be here. But right now, let us respond to a God of love and forgiveness.
Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much that I'm forgiven. I thank you so much that we are forgiven. I pray that out of the abundance of your love, we would live lives of love. In Christ's name.